welcome to the Darkness Dwells podcast episode 110. This week we are talking with Steve Rasnick Tem. I am Jason White. I'm Michael Schutz. So, so how you been doing, Michael? I've been really good. Had a good holidays. Um, then I had some post-holiday depression. Um, but then the new year clicked over, and I'm just glad that it's all over. Start a new year, put my head down, and finish some writing projects. Yeah, exactly. You know, I understand that uh, a lot of people have, uh, is- like, not issues, but you know, they struggle over the holidays. And I, I kind of understand that because I don't, I don't hate the holidays by any means. I get kind of excited for them. And by holidays, I include Halloween in that. <laughs> yeah, so, the whole, like, the Halloween the whole and Christmas is uh, like my time of the year. So I get, ex- we have, we have both, we both have September birthdays. So September comes and we like have a straight shot through all kinds of special days. Exactly. And so once January 1st hits, it's all over for like another nine months, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just desolate. <laughs> Holidays <laughs> and, and presents. <laughs> yeah, so I hit a low spot too. Uh, I I was really depressed for a little while. Like, not like sad necessarily, just that, you know, having trouble getting out of bed because all you want to do is sleep. Yeah. And you only want to get up to go to the bathroom and maybe eat. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I'm starting to feel better now, so that's good. That's good. So, you know, I was wondering, what what have you been reading, Michael? Uh, let's see. I read um, just recently Christopher Rice's Bone Music, okay. which is a Burning Girl thriller number one, which is really excellent. It's, um, as far as I'm concerned, one of his best in years. So I suggest people go out and get that one. I read Jim Thompson's The Getaway. Um, that was, that was really good. I don't think I understand the last chapter. I mean, I think I do. It was mm-hmm. kind of weird. I think I get it. Yeah. And I'm reading, uh, Philip Jose Farmer's Blown right now, An Exorcism Ritual 2. Uh, that's really out there. <laughs> <laughs> really out there. It's pretty bizarre, hey? Oh my goodness. It's very sexual. It's very poppy z bright. Oh, yeah, Poppy Z. Bright. I haven't read her, or I guess him, in a long time. I've actually only read Exquisite Corpse, but that was one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah. Ever. So I need to get more. Like, fast. But, you know, I mean, both of us, our to-be-read list is just Yeah. A They're mile. mountains. Yeah. Yeah. I like, to, I like to joke I was, on, my, uh, on my YouTube channel that... Oh, yeah. That my uh, my to be read pile has become a mountain, and now yes. has become a fucking planet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hear you. Yeah, mine is at least a moon. Oh man, uh, you know I've been reading uh, as well. I just finished uh, mapping the interior by Stephen Graham Jones. I I was actually uh, good, uh, it was short enough to read in like a sitting, and that was uh, that was pretty good. You're a big fan of him, I know. Yeah, well, actually, not really. Um, I, it's not that I don't like his work. I'm not saying that at all. I've only read two things by him that I'm aware of. I probably have written other short stories. But what I have read of him, um, I'm really enjoying, or I have really enjoyed. So, yeah. I read. I also read The Night Cyclist about a year ago, and that, that was just like a, an ode 
to one of my favorite Stephen King stories, uh, the night flyer, uh, the night cyclist, the night flyer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the stories are close too. except it instead of airplanes, uh, it's, it's bicycles. And, uh, that was interesting, but mapping the interior was an interesting story about aboriginals and, uh, the loss of, uh, a child having lost his father and sort of a descent into madness. It was pretty, uh, it's pretty good. I liked it. I'll check that out. I like to sense into madness. That's one of my favorite uh, themes. It kind of starts off as like a ghost story, but it goes into very much, at least what I felt was the territory of like weird fiction because of that, um, that sense of an un unreliable narrator and, uh, mm. and uh, you know, that descent into madness. You don't know exactly what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I kind of like that. It kept you on edge. Great. Now I have another book on my to-be-read. Your moon uh, is slowly becoming sense. a planet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's pretty thin, too. You, you can polish that off in a couple hours, I think. That's that's great. I love single-sitting reads. Yeah, me too. Makes you feel like you accomplished something. Yeah, and I read somewhere, and it's it's pretty much true, that, that most novels are sort of... I mean, they're kind of meant to be read as fast as possible. I mean, you're not, you know, there's a limited amount of, of time that goes by. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. When I heard that, it made a lot more sense than when I just tried to say it. But <laughs> yeah. It's like when you say something that sounded better in your head. Yes. And then oh. you're, you said it, and it's like everyone's looking at you, and you're like, uh. Was that... That's why I'm not an orator. I'm a writer. And... <laughs> yeah. I don't you speak know, I well. Need, I need the editing. I need about five or six passes on something before it's even Before it's been said right, yeah. Uh -huh. All right, so this week we we had a, a wonderful conversation with Steve Rasnick-Tem that went for... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, went, went for like an hour and... Uh, oh, did it? Yeah. Oh, I wow. I, it, yeah, the time bad. flew, didn't it? Yes, and I, I could have uh, I could have kept talking to him too, but you know there's uh, time limits. <laughs> Real life always uh, wants to invade your uh, your little yes. hobbies. <laughs> yeah, but you know he was great to talk to. So we're going to be talking to him, and we're also going to be talking about the 2018. Um, I guess it's like a relaunch rather than a remake of Halloween. Yes, our our like. Most looked forward to movie of 2018. And uh, before we go into any of that, though, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, the people who support the show. First up is uh, Crystal Lake Publishing. They've been publishing since 2012. Um, they're going through a lot of changes right now. They're going to be uh, actually, as of right now, um, January the 26th, they're accepting novella um, submissions. And so if, if you have a novella, not a novel... A novella uh so that's like up to forty-five thousand words i believe uh give them a shot um especially if it's you know dark fiction obviously uh but you know they've published a lot of authors that all of us here admire like ramsey campbell clive barker um mercedes yardley todd keesling Pretty much the list goes on and on. I, I don't think there's too many horror authors out there that they haven't published, like, I'm talking big names, like uh, the people you'd know, except for maybe Stephen King and Joe Hill. Recently, 
they've published, uh, what is it, an anthology? Uh, it's called It's Alive, Bringing Your Nightmares to Life. Yeah, there's a ton, tons of really awesome authors in here. There's F. Paul Wilson, Clive Barker, Chuck Palahniuk, uh, Michael Bailey, Kevin J. Anderson, which is kind of neat. Christopher Golden, Sarah Pinborough, uh, Yvonne Navarro, Joe R. Lansdale, Jonathan Mayberry, Richard Chismar. I'm laughing because every name is so huge. You know what I mean? Um, I know. So definitely go check out It's Alive. It's available at Amazon. Amazon.com. And uh, definitely go check out Crystal Lake. Go to crystallakepub.com. And uh, check out what they got going because they're always uh, they're always doing some really incredible stuff. Um, now I'm also going to uh, Audible.com. Uh, we do get a small uh, fee; uh, it's like fifteen dollars or something like that per uh, two people who do it. So go to www.audibletrial.com/slash uh, Darkness Dwells and sign up for a free month long trial membership now this uh, trial membership gets you a free audiobook i'm gonna make one suggestion and uh, it's a pretty fun uh young adult um story actually it's called scythe by neil schusterman it's a story about um about it's like two or three hundred years in the future and uh humanity has uh has has defeated death they can regenerate people after they die and they can give you a new body and everything. But in order to keep with the uh, population, they have these uh, uh, this organization, the Scythes, that uh, go around and, and kill people. <laughs> so it almost seems like a contradiction, but I'm listening to it right now, and it's really freaking fun. So I highly recommend people checking it out. But that free trial, you can pick any book you want. That's just my suggestion. All nice. right. Who reads it? You, do you know offhand? Sorry, who who who, uh, who reads it? You know, I'm not sure. I should check that out. Uh, the narration is pretty good, so it's narrated by Greg Tremblay. I'm pretty sure I haven't heard him narrate anything else before, but that doesn't mean that he's bad or anything. Um, there's a lot of narrators out there. There's a few books that he narrates also that I've uh, that I'm familiar with. We're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back. We're going to be joined by Steve Raznick-Tem, so stay in your seats. Welcome back. This week we have a really awesome guest, and you could say that this is take number two because of technical difficulties. Um, and, you know, Steve, thank you very much for your, your patience. I really appreciate it. No problem. So, Steve Raznick-Tem... He's our guest this week, and he was born in the state of Virginia. He is the multiple award-winning author of over 400 published short stories, novellas, poetry, and novels. His novels include Yubo, Excavation, Bloodkin, Deadfall Hotel, and uh, the children's story, The Mask Shop of Dr. Black. His story collections include City Fishing, Figures Unseen, The Harvest Child, and other fantasies, and most recently, everything is fine now, which it is, <laughs> and it's also, <laughs> and, it, and it's also out by Omnium Gatherum. Welcome to the show, Steve. Welcome, glad to be here. <laughs> glad to have you. Thank you. All right, so uh, 
we didn't make it very far last time, so I guess it's okay to ask the the first question again. And sure. that was, uh, I remember the first time I saw you speaking on a panel. I'm pretty sure it was in Brighton, the UK there, and at the World Horror Convention. And I remember just being, like, kind of floored that you had over, at the time anyway, 300 uh, published short stories. Um, at the time then, I don't think I even, well, I maybe had a couple myself. So I was just like, holy cow, 300. <laughs> so I was just wondering, how many how many words do you write every day? Well, it's varied quite a bit over the years. Um, for most of that time, I, I was a had a full-time day job as a technical writer and editor. And I would write in the morning, sometimes at lunch, and sometimes the evening. But throughout that time, I tried to write at least a thousand words a day, uh, every day. Uh, now, since then, uh, especially the last couple of years since I've retired, I've gone down my word count a bit, in part because I'm trying to give myself a break since I am 68 at this point, and I've written a lot. But I'm also trying to focus on things that stories that really compel me to write them, um, that I feel a real need to write. And so I'm usually happy if I do about 500 words. Uh, sometimes, though, I might just do a paragraph. Uh, often I'm I'm satisfied if I if I feel like I've done at least one thing that pushes the story forward, whether it be a bit of important research or if it's note-taking or something that I think will help me finish the story. As long as I get that done, I'm happy. Now, I, I tend to, to work on several stories at the same time. So usually, these days, most stories take me about three months to finish, but since I'm writing several stories at the same time, it averages out to about one finished story a month. The other thing that uh, factors into my um, high publication count is the fact that I never throw anything away. And I may sometimes write uh, several pages of a story getting the opening and the idea down and not finish it at that point. But I'll save it and periodically I'll look back over these pieces of stories I've accumulated. And there's usually a couple of hundred and I find something that I suddenly know how to finish it. So sometimes those stories get done fairly quickly. Uh, to tell you the truth, um, I was teaching it with my wife, Melly at Odyssey a few years ago and someone asked me and I was trying to figure out how many stories I finished a year, and it really the math never did work. I really couldn't figure out <laughs> where all those stories came from. I just know that somehow they got out there, and I think at a certain point you learn certain habits that kind of turn you into a uh, story-making machine, if you will, and at least for part of my career, that that's really what I was. Yeah, you said you never you don't throw anything away. Um, in regards to writing a story. So let's just say there was a scene that you were working on, it didn't work, and so you took it out. How would you use that again later? Uh, I'll save it under a file name and maybe with a few words of description and enough, at least enough words of description that it will remind me of what the scene is about. And I may, when I'm thinking about ideas, I may find a new story just based around that scene or I may be working on a story and I come to a point where I'm stuck and I'll remember vaguely I had something that might fit there and I'll go back and I'll find something. And usually all those pieces 
can be useful, at least if it's uh, something compelling. Now, there are, there are certainly probably hundreds of scenes and bits and pieces on, in my files that I'll never use. But uh, so far, I've been pretty good at uh, uh, finding use for a lot of the uh, scenes that didn't make it into stories. Uh, because oh. you're you're so so prolific with short stories, I'm going to assume that you enjoy writing short stories over novels. Uh, yeah, the thing for me, I'm 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 a fairly self-indulgent writer, and that I like the feeling of of accomplishment when you finish something. Yeah, and so just that constant feedback of finishing a story. Every month, or in the earlier days, even more, even more than one a month, uh, was just so gratifying that the idea of of having to work on a novel for a year or two really didn't appeal to me for a long time because it was just the idea of delaying gratification for such a long time. It's it really frustrated my 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 feeling of, of creativity. If you, if you if, go. If you go. For too long without writing, does that really start to get at you? Oh uh, yeah, I get a bit antsy, um, and sometimes. But I also, I also get to the point sometimes where I, I have a kind of a mini burnout, or a, or I, I'll, I'll face some lack of confidence, and I just may not want to do it for a few days or even a week. And those times, I've learned to just go ahead and go with it and take that time off and kind of recharge, see a lot of movies. I see a lot of movies anyway yeah. and uh, yeah. do a lot of reading and uh, until I feel compelled to jump back into it again. Now, it also helps that I tend to work on a lot of different projects at the same time. So if I get stuck or uh, unenthusiastic about one project, I can jump to another. Now, that's a problem when you're working on novels because – Sometimes you go away from the novel and it may take you a long, long time to get back to it. And that's one reason that some of my novels have taken such a long time to complete. Now, you, you, you've you also written a fair number of novels. Uh, when you first start writing a new story, do you know right away if it's going to be a short story or a novel? Well, now I do. Um, in the beginning, I didn't really. I... I uh, when I wrote my first novel, Excavation, I originally wrote a short story uh, called Excavations, and I submitted it to Marion Zimmer Bradley's fantasy magazine. It was sometime in the 80s. And uh, she got back to me and said she liked the writing, but she thought that this was really the seed of a novel, that it wasn't a short story. So I looked at it and thinking, I really didn't quite know what she was talking about, but I but I tried it, and I realized that she was right, that this was really a, a more of an outline for a novel than it was a story. Uh, since then, however, I, I my novels have been a lot more deliberate, and I think I recognize when something's going to be a story or a, a novel, partly in, in terms of uh, just the focus of it, a number of characters, uh, how I see it as a... Uh, as a focused item, I I generally like to write very compressed stories where every piece of the story has to do with the theme, and so that that really lends itself to short stories more than it does to novels. Um, 
what I find is that if I have a more ambitious idea that's going to have a broader time frame, then, then I'm pretty sure that's going to be a, nove- a novel or at least a novella. So am I uh, correct in assuming that you're, uh, you write by the seat of your pants? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, I write short stories definitely by the seat of my pants. In fact, with short stories, I frequently may know nothing about the story at all except some phrase or some bit of dialogue is stuck in my head, and I write that down, and I start writing down other things that kind of come to mind when I look at that piece of that phrase or that piece of writing, and I really do an improvisation from there. And that's frequently the way I write most of my stories, with that, is with that kind of improvisation, uh, especially now. It, it wasn't that way in the beginning. In the beginning, I had to know pretty much the beginning and the end, but now I find a lot more fun not to know those things. Now, that's also a really risky way to write. Mm-hmm. And it's one reason I often have these unfinished stories with just a few scenes in them because the process for improvising really didn't work. But most of the time, it does seem to work. Now, with novels, I tried... Excavation was definitely written from the seat of my pants. And uh, then my novel, uh, Book of Days, was a completely improvised project from the beginning where I would uh, improvise a story based on historical events on every specific calendar day. And the novel was structured that way for, I think it was over a three-month period, and I would write a, a new piece each day. In fact, I wrote them online on the old Genie uh, uh, message board service. Uh-huh. Uh, now, since then, I discovered that in order to finish my more ambitious novel, starting with Deadfall Hotel, I really had to outline them. I really had to have some kind of framework to hang my imagination on. And so I think if I hadn't started outlining the novels, I never would have finished um, uh, Deadfall Hotel or uh, Bloodkin or especially Yubo. Uh, I just couldn't have done that seat of my pants, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, you write in uh, many different genres, but you are most mostly known for weird fiction and horror. Um what is it that you would say keeps bringing you back to horror? Well, my my initial motivation for writing it all was because I perceived that there were a lot of hidden realities in the world that there was that there was hidden knowledge, uh, and I started with things historically which people often didn't talk about, things like in polite society, things like the Holocaust. Um, or uh, Hiroshima and what that was like, uh, what the Jack the Ripper uh, murders were really like specifically, uh, and things like that. When I found them, when I found out about those things, it really, uh, it really kind of blew me away. The fact that there was all these things that, that at least in my town and my, my parents, that people didn't talk about. Uh, I also remember um, reading about hydrocephalic wards and. Uh, handicapped children, uh, children with birth defects that were kept institutionalized. It was something that was never talked about. And the fact that there was this kind of reality that was not talked about 
that really fascinated me. And that idea kind of expanded to the idea that that the reality that we have in our dreams uh, and, in, and in our imaginations, which often is the most telling uh, part of our personal histories that may tell people more about who we actually are than anything that actually uh, gets presented publicly or is written down on paper. And that that whole history for most of us is never known. And that people go throughout their entire lives with this rich interior life that no one knows about. And it isn't shared, if they're, especially if they're not a writer. And the fact that that's all lost when that person dies, well, that really nodded me. And it seemed to me something kind of profound. And when I thought about writing about those about all those things, the genre that really fit for that was horror. Because there is so much dread and, uh, I guess, existential terror involved in that kind of subject matter. Actually, that, that thing has driven me back to horror every time. Uh, there's one thing you said there that actually reminds me of... Uh a quote from a Stephen King television series, uh, I forget the name of it, something hospital, where uh, they were doing uh, open brain surgery on someone and the doctor was looking at the brain. Kingdom hospital, right? Yeah, that's it. And he's like, there's a whole universe right there inside that gray matter. <laughs> and it's so yes. true though, right? Absolutely. Um, I want to actually talk about existential dread and all that, but uh, uh, not right now. First, I want to know, who did you read growing up? Who did what? Who did you read while you were growing up? Well, initially, what I I read comic books. It was about the only books I had um, available to me. I grew up in a in a small southwest Virginia mountain town where there was no public library. In fact, we didn't get a public library. I think until around the time I entered high school, and before then, the only books I knew anyone had was my my grandfather had a, a fairly large library that he had, he had, that he had uh, uh, inherited from his father, but he was the only one person I knew who had any books. Now, there were some books in the, in the school library, but those were mostly things that had been donated and uh, offshoots. I don't think they really had a budget even to buy books in, that, in the high school or the elementary school library. So when... For reading comic books, I I begged my parents for a set of encyclopedias, and the main reason I wanted that was because what came with it was this this set of children's classics, like King Arthur and Robin Hood and H.G. Uh, Wells' The Invisible Man, those kinds of books. And so when we got those, I read all those, and that's about the time when the science early days of the science fiction book club. And I, I talked them into letting me this subscription to that. And also about that same time, we did get the public library and I went, remember going to the public library, which is actually one room over a bowling alley. That was way it started. And I remember going all these books that had rocket ship stickers on the science fiction and I just tried to read all that I could, and I especially liked Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov, and um, so I, I read most of the early science fiction books that way. That's awesome. Um, and about uh, what you used to read, 
I'm thinking critics and English teachers always talk a lot about regional styles. Um, have you been inspired by other Southern authors as well? Like, is there any Flannery O'Connor or William Faulkner influences for you? Uh, well, definitely when I got into college, uh, I became uh, very interested in the Southern regionalists. And I read a lot of Faulkner especially. And I reread Faulkner around the time I was working on the novel Bloodkin. I reread uh, Absalom, Absalom, and uh, uh, several other books at that point. Uh, I also I also like Flannery O'Connor. Always have. Uh, where I come from, uh, Jesse Stewart was one of the most popular Southern writers. He wrote about well, he wrote about hillbillies. He wrote about Appalachia, the kind of people I knew. Uh, he he grew up in Kentucky, which was just over the mountain from where I lived. And uh, so you could, you could saw, you saw Jesse Stewart books sometimes in the schools. And I remember the, uh, I know the anthologies that they taught for English classes often had a Jesse Stewart story. Um, there's also, uh, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but, uh, oh, John Fox Jr. was a popular, um, uh, Kentucky and uh, Virginia writer who uh, lived for a while in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, and, and uh, he wrote a book called The Trail of Lonesome Pine, and there's now been an outdoor drama based on that in Big Stone for, well, for decades. Hmm. And so I was familiar with his work. Um, now, none of this was particularly weird work, but uh, it certainly had an influence early on, and it, it it's one of the reasons that I always knew I would write my novel, Bloodkin. In fact, I wrote the first chapter of it um, in high school. And pretty much that, 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 that chapter stayed the same, just got a little bit better with rewrites over the years. And that's pretty much what appears in the final novel. Sweet. Now, um you, I think it was just yesterday. Uh, you released a new collection with Omnium Gatherum, and uh, it's called "Everything Is Fine Now." Uh, is this your first time working with Kate Jonas? Uh, yeah, I uh, met Kate. I guess it was at the first StokerCon, and uh, chatted with her a little bit. And uh, I really wasn't familiar with the press at that point. Then I, I remember picking up a couple of books at that Stoker Con, and then later on, she sent me a galley of uh, Karen Warren's novel, Tide of Stone, which I which I really enjoyed quite a bit. I've always liked Karen's work quite a bit, mm-hmm. and I gave a blurb for that. And about the time that, <coughs> excuse me, I was putting together this collection of well, I call it a YA collection, and basically it's a, it's a collection of stories with mostly, predominantly, YA protagonists. Now, the stories have appeared in not only in a few YA anthologies, but they've also appeared in adult anthologies as well. But the, co- the common point is that either it had a YA protagonist or I thought it might be of special interest to YA readers. And so I put together this collection because those are the kinds of stories that I had skipped over when I was putting together my other horror collections. Um, and I thought it would make a nice, co- cohesive collection. What I, what I discovered is after I put it together was that uh, collections of 
YA stories are very difficult to sell. Uh, you occasionally see anthologies of YA, YA work, but uh, a single author collection in the YA field is actually fairly rare. Yeah. Uh, most publishers yeah. don't want to risk that. And so I had this collection. I sent it around to, to a few places I dealt with before, and almost all of them basically said, we don't know what to do with YA, with a YA collection. Even if it even if it was basically an all ages collection, uh, they would still call it a YA collection. So I finally I, I liked the books that Kate had done, so I just wrote her and asked her if she would be interested in seeing it, and so she said yes. I sent it to her and she bought it. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not big business or anything like that. I I've never published um, like. I, I don't own a publishing house or anything, but I, I just can't imagine people turning down Steve Resnick, Tim, but I'm, I'm kind of biased. <laughs> well, well, I appreciate that, but you know, <laughs> there's a marketing angle I know, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's still a matter of, you know, what's going to sell. And, uh, uh, I do. Okay. I'm not a best selling author though. So yeah, I'm definitely not a sure fire sale. So, so, uh, can you tell us what some of the stories and everything is fine now are about? Well, it's a wide range of stuff. There, there's a, I know early in the book, there's a story called Mechanic, which is actually one of my first published stories. It was published in uh, Chrysalis, the Roy Torgerson anthology series. And that story is about, basically it's about a mechanic who's out in a junkyard who talks to the cars. And he brings them to life basically through, through some sort of ritual involving uh, blood and uh, victim's blood and bone and, mm-hmm. and other nefarious means. So that, that's one of the stories. Um, another story is Jake's Body, which was was actually published in a, uh, first published in a YA anthology out of Canada. And Jake's Body is basically um, that, that story about a young, a young man who's uh, first, developing body hair and how alarming it is. And so I turn into a kind of a werewolf story as he's alarmed, as, as he keeps on finding hair in unusual places. <laughs> um, there's a, a story called Daddy's an Actor, which, which uh, actually was uh, in New Mystery Magazine number one. And that was basically a, a monologue uh, story about a, a daughter whose uh, father is an actor who gets into legal trouble, and uh, um, his his tragic story. Uh, there's a a couple of collaborations with my late wife Melanie. One's Domestic Magic, which I think is actually one of the best stories she and I wrote together. It appeared in a first appeared in a British anthology, and it's basically about a teenage boy whose mother is a witch, hmm. and which sounds like he, he imagines that you know, she is, should be able to do all kinds of things that are positive for the family, but instead they're very, very poor, and she doesn't use her magic for anything that seems to be practical. And in fact, she finds he, he discovers that she actually isn't that great a mother either. So um, that's kind of a, a boy's realization story about his family. Uh, there's, there's another story in there called Skullbees, which is actually takes place in the universe of my novel Deadfall Hotel. Hmm. It's a story which has only appeared in the Centipede Press limited edition 
of Deadfall Hotel. And it's basically a, a little set piece involving the young girl character in Deadfall Hotel. Um, there's a story called There's No Such Thing as Monsters, which was uh, a story of mine that was published in Gorezone. And that's basically about a uh, um, um, young man who goes to the movies and uh, sees a horror movie. So that, that gives you an idea. It, it's uh, the age range of the characters are from well, young adolescents to the late teenage years. Yeah, I, I kind of had to laugh there at the uh, werewolf story because when I was a kid, um, I kind of hit puberty before everyone else, and my my legs got hairy before everyone else's, and I used to get made fun of for that. <laughs> so I was like yeah, a werewolf. <laughs> the main surprise—it's a—it's an amazing process. I remember when. Uh, uh, I remember when our my oldest daughter reached puberty. Uh, it was like all of a sudden her feet smelled. <laughs> we could she she'll, she'll hate me for saying this, but all of a sudden I I, I remember one morning my wife and I were, were eating breakfast and we smelled this horrible smell, and it was my daughter's feet from upstairs. Oh, uh, and. Where it's a, unless it's really hit her hard, there all of a sudden. So <laughs> that's that's a good story. I like that. It's it's an it's an alarming process. I say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, figures unseen was uh, released recently too, and it's a collection of short stories that you selected with the idea being that the stories uh, best represent your body of work. Uh, can you uh, go into that? Uh, anthology and uh, and tell us perhaps what your favorite ones are. Well, you know, actually, it's 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 a it's a collection of basically all my favorite stories. Okay, it's uh, the stories that I went through each each of my collections and picked out the ones that really spoke to me the most and which I thought best represent me, and that's why I include in the book. Um, and it's interesting, actually, a couple of more recent stories have been published in the last few years, like uh, Between the Pilings and Red Rabbit, which was in Borderlands, uh, to me are, are two of the most powerful things I've written uh, ever. And so uh, I think those pretty much have a special place for me. There's also stories like uh, Vintage Domestic, which was um, a, uh, my first, uh, well, I thought, I thought my, I think it was my most powerful story about vampirism, uh, about a man and his uh, family, and the other family members are, are vampires, and basically what he has to deal with, just on a practical level, having those people in the family. Um, there's also a story called An Ending, which, I don't know, I, I, maybe my most traumatic story in some ways. It's about an older couple who have been, who are, have been, their daughter has kind of tied them up in a chair while they do go run an errand, while she goes run an errand, and something happens to her, and she comes back. And basically it's about the last hours of their life and what they're hallucinating. Um, so there's also uh, my first professional sale, City Fishing, is in there, uh, about a young man who takes an unusual hunting trip with his uh, father and uh, 
father and a, and a neighbor man into the into the depths of the city. So basically, if, I, I think that for me, this book's main purpose is that when someone asks me, what do you do? I just point them to this book. Hmm. And that pretty much says everything I think about what I would want to say about what I write. That's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, Michael, Michael, did you have a, a question? Um, yes, I was wondering if any of your stories have been adapted or, or optioned for any TV or, or movies. Um, well, not really. I mean, there have been there have been the occasional conversation. Um, in fact, I remember at one point, Tales from the Dark Side contacted me and wanted to see some stories. And so I sent them a representative sample, and basically they conclude the stories were too interior to adapt. And I think that maybe one issue with the kind of fiction I write is a lot of stories are pretty interior, and the actual plots are kind of minimal. Uh, now, uh, my story at the Bureau has been adopted, adapted to short films twice for film festivals. Uh, once was by a, uh, a student in North Carolina. Uh, uh, actually, he was from Vietnam, and he wrote a wonderful script based on it. I didn't. Even, he asked me for some suggestions, but I couldn't think of a thing to improve it. So somewhere that's out there, and also uh, a film company in Arizona also made that story into a short film for the film festival circuit. But those are the only two adaptations. Never been made. That's a real shame that Tales from the Dark Side didn't didn't do something with that. That was my favorite show growing up. I think they really missed the boat on that. Yeah, me too. You know, I suppose. I mean, if um, I think I've written stories which are less interior than that since then. <coughs> I don't know. You know, this this is all this is all a crapshoot. Uh, I've never actually had a uh, uh, film agent or anything like that. I I always actually thought that Dead for Hotel would have made a great TV series. I think so, too, think, honestly. Uh, <laughs> because uh, there was the framework with all the existing stories, and you could actually create a number of other stories that would take place in that hotel. So that, that to me, would have been the obvious one. But, you know, nothing's ever happened. And, oh, well. Well, hopefully one day. Um now, as I said before, I've been reading you for a long time. It came to the point where I would buy an anthology just because uh, you had a story in it. Um, and most of your fiction, the reason why I did this, most of your fiction, at least the ones that I've read, deal a lot uh, with subjects like what it means to exist. And this often leads to, uh, we here we'll go back to existential dread, uh, meditations on mortality, <coughs> And uh, the depths that relationships can go. Uh, these are really the reasons why I enjoy your work so much. As you were talking about, like the stories are too internal for them to be uh, transcribed to the big screen. Um, it's it's almost like uh, when I'm reading your story, it's like you tapped into what I'm thinking and feeling and were able to effectively communicate it. Um, so how do you approach a story when, when you're writing it to to hit home so well like that? Uh, well, part of my goal on any story 
is to find the emotional center. Um, the part, the thing about the story which makes it essential to the protagonist, uh, the emotional, the emotions involved that drive the protagonist, um, that that whole um, thematic emotional center is what I'm always looking for. And until I find that, I can't finish the story. And so lots of times I'm writing a great deal in the beginning and around the subject until I finally find what the key emotions are. And then I go back and revise and revise the story to, to uh, so it's more in keeping with those emotions and, the, and that perception. Um, to me, the, the essentials for horror, almost any kind of fiction, are those basic human conflicts having to do with uh, existence and what's the meaning of existence? Why am I waking up every morning? Uh, what drives me? What's the use of doing this? Um, fear is over dying, fears over your loved ones dying. Um, to me, those are those are the big issues. And it's something that uh, I think horror fiction can deal with uh, more effectively than almost any other kind of fiction. And, it's, and I think no matter what kind of subject matter or theme I'm working with, I always try to get back to those basic, basic themes and, and look at them in a, in a different kind of way. So that's pretty much the way I base my stories as to why they communicate to readers. Well, that's kind of a mysterious process. I don't know. I just try to make them communicate to me and uh, hopefully that other people will be able to relate to them. Michael? Michael? Well, your, um, the book Yubel was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award and The Man on the Ceiling won one. I'm just wondering, did you did you know, did you feel that those particular books were destined for success? You know, the way that ball players will say they know they hit a home run just the way it comes off the bat. Did you feel that with those? Uh, not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, with The Man on the Ceiling, which is probably the most successful thing I've ever written, which I wrote with my wife, um, Part of my convincing my wife to, to work on it with me was I told her no one would ever read it. <laughs> <laughs> I told her, you know, it was probably never going to be published, but it, but, but it would be a wonderful and challenging writing exercise and that we would learn a lot more about the craft by writing the story. Uh, we, were also, we were also at a point of our lives where I guess sometimes you get old enough you're a little bit less self-protective. When you're younger, as a writer, you're trying to present a certain kind of image sometimes, and you're trying to to uh, be cool and not say anything that's going to embarrass yourself, not to be too revealing. You're just cautious. And uh, we had both reached the age where we didn't feel particularly cautious anymore. We didn't care what other people thought about what we had to say. We we didn't think, care whether people thought it was uh, too revelatory or if it was embarrassing or, or uh, just those honest expressions of emotion that sometimes just seem not very cool when you're younger. So that's the reason we wrote it. And, uh, uh, and I pretty much promised her that <laughs> it, would, it would go nowhere. <laughs> and uh, 
So, you know, that came as a complete surprise. Um, with Yubo, uh, I mean, it got, Yubo got, um, did get the nomination for the Stoker, but in many ways, it's my least successful book. I think it's sold less than my other novels. And uh, even though I think it's my best novel, so uh, I didn't necessarily think it would do well. I thought it might do well because I felt really strongly about the prose, but you know, you just never can tell. It, it is, Yubo is about a fairly unpleasant subject. It's it's about violence and human capacity for it, and it is probably the most graphic thing I've ever written, and in some ways the most disturbing thing, covers the most disturbing subject matter, and then I'll probably never go that go to the, in that particular place again. Uh, it's something I'm glad I wrote, and I'm proud of it, but uh, it's not, I guess I, I, I'm not surprised it hasn't taken off to become a, to become a popular novel. Actually, I, um, you said something interesting on, on the Lovecraft Ezine podcast uh, that you did, I think it was this past summer. Um, something like, and this is not a direct quote, that a lot of horror fans typically shy away from the really, really disturbing material. And that you have found a drop in sales the more disturbing your stories are, such as Yubo. Um, why do you think this is? People who tend to gravitate toward, towards dark entertainment... Um, would uh, would shy away for something that's really really nasty. Well, well, it's interesting. It's something I didn't understand when I first started writing horror fiction. But I would run into a lot of fans who basically they wanted they wanted the um, the thrill of touching on taboo and dark subjects. But they didn't particularly want to be disturbed themselves at any, at any real deep level. So I, this was when I first became aware of this whole concept of triggering, that uh, most people don't want to be triggered. They want to vicariously enjoy dark things which are a substitute for the things that really bother them. So they like vampire stories because... It has blood. It kind of touches on um, people possessing you or sucking the life out of you. Uh, but at the same time, it's just enough removed from your everyday experience that it doesn't feel threatening. But whereas if you write a story about relationships in which you have a reuser's relationship and someone has drained the other person psychologically... Uh, if that comes too close to their own situation, they don't necessarily find it entertaining. And entertaining seems to be the key word. It's, it's uh, a lot of horror fans are entertained by the genre, and they don't want to be touched to the point where it's no longer entertained to them. I mean, they may admire that writing, uh, and they may appreciate it, but they don't want to read too much of it. At least, at least, at least that's been my experience uh, for the general run of of uh, horror fiction. I think, in some ways, horror fiction, for all its um, claims to be cutting edge and uh, edgy, um, 
is in some ways a very conservative kind of literature uh, where it's very careful about its boundaries and the distance it keeps. Uh, uh, it harkens back to the uh, French Grand Guignol in which you had um, plays in which there were succeeding um, successively stronger imagery and, and gross-out moments which the audience would gag and, and pretend that they were horrified by, by it, but it was really kind of a sham. They were more appreciative of the techniques going through it. They weren't really personally terrified. It was just that it was kind of a tacit agreement that they would act horrified if you gave them something really colorful and dramatic. And I think that's the way a lot of horror fiction is. I also think that maybe compassion may be a, a part of it because uh, a lot of horror fans I know um, are really big uh, animal uh, lovers and uh, they stand up for like animal rights and stuff like that. Yes, that's true. In fact, uh, it's interesting. Even though I love animals myself, the the one scene I've gotten the most negative feedback from was that there's a chapter in um, Deadfall Hotel called The King of the Cats. And it's about uh, basically a monstrous creature who manifests as a cat and all these terrible things are happening to cats. Now, the things happening to the cats are things that they're doing to, to each other. It's not things that human beings are doing to the cats, but still, that disturbed a lot of cat lovers. Yeah. <laughs> so I got a lot of negative mail about that. But I assure you, I love cats. I love all animals. Um, I purposely chose an animal for that story that everybody loves to turn monstrous. Yeah, um, yeah, that's uh, actually like uh, something that Stephen King likes to do. It, in order to show you who's the bad guy, he usually has them kick a dog to death. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, you know, I was wondering about the opposite side of the coin as well. Why do you think people like you and me um, and Michael are are drawn to this subject matter when so many people are not? Um, well... It's interesting. I'm. Uh, I was a frightened kid. I was scared of pretty much everything, and I was really highly sensitive to to dark things. And most things scared me. Um, I didn't trust my parents particularly. I didn't trust adults. And to me, the world was a horrifying place. And uh, I know my late wife Melanie and I used to talk about the fact that for both of us we were drawn to the things that disturbed and scared us most. And it was the need to somehow put that down onto paper and to seemingly control that and to analyze that and to take, o take it over. And instead of letting it run you, you try to run it. Uh, that's what kind of drove both of us to look at dark materials. It's not because we relish violence or we relish really dark things. In fact, those were the things in some ways that disturb us the most which drove the need to write about them. Uh, Ubo, one reason Ubo came about is the thing that disturbs me most in the world and other human beings is violence. I have absolutely no taste for it and in my own personal life I keep it at a good distance which is one reason I wanted to write about though because I want to understand it and I want to somehow come to grips with it. 
Yeah. yeah. I also heard that you like to have at least one big belly laugh a day. How are you able to separate yourself from these dark topics, especially if you're working on a particularly dark story, something like Ubo? Um, well, you you learn to remove yourself. Now, Ubo was, has been was the biggest challenge about that because I started that book actually writing it when I had young kids. And I would work, uh, I'd be in the mind of Jack the Ripper, say, during the afternoon, and then I would go try to play with my kids who were five and six years old and tell them bedtime stories, and it was really difficult. I found it uh, really wrenching to do that, which is one reason I had to put that book aside for many years as my kids got older, because I couldn't make that separation. Uh, now, yeah, I'd say for most for the most part, it comes pretty naturally to me. I have a, I, I tend to have a kind of satirical frame of mind most of the time. I, I watch like lots of camp comedy. I watch lots of stand-up comedy. I, I like funny things. Uh, you know, I like making jokes. I like um, not taking things so serious, so seriously. Sometimes it's, it's my other way of coping with things that I think are dark. And I've been like that since I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, oh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, you don't just write um, uh, horror. You've written in other, other genres, and uh, one of those genres is fantasy, because recently you released another collection of fantasy stories called uh, Harvest Child and Other Fantasies. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this anthology, or collection, sorry? Uh, I'm really interested to see what uh, Steve Tem would do with sword and sorcery. Yeah, well... I've always been interested in all forms of science fiction and fantasy, and in the while I was writing horror stories, I was also writing stories to try to get into other kinds of markets, and a lot of those were fantasy-based. And it just so happens that I became known for horror, and and as I put collections together, I would out of the four hundred some stories I've published, I was picking out the horror stories, the, the most effective ones, or at least the most disturbing ones. And, and in the course of that, um, I suppose it came down to doing little career house cleaning. I get, I get to, I've gotten to this point in my career where I have all these collections of horror stories, and yet I had all these other stories I had published that were fantasy-based that I had never made a collection from. So I decided it was just time to pick those out, pick the best ones out, and put them in one collection. And so um, a lot of these stories are stories in which I was just attempting to break into another market. So there's a, there will be stories in here from Dragon Magazine uh, or uh, from Pirate Writings, uh, Miriam Zimmer Bradley's Fantasy Magazine. There's a lot of uh, small press stuff in the book. Um uh, just anywhere where I had published anything that was kind of fantasy-based, I also wanted to have it represent a ra- the range of fantasy. So there are also dark fantasy slash horror stories where the emphasis is a little bit more on the fantasy than on the horror. And there's even a few science fiction stories, especially uh, funny science fiction stories that and published in places like Asimov's. So uh, I know The Harvest Child, the t- title story, is uh, 
story of mine that appeared in uh, Elsewhere, an old uh, anthology that uh, I think Jim Bayon was responsible for. And uh, the story was actually in uh, uh, Years Best Fantasy when Art Saha was doing that book back in the 80s. And also there was a story called The Artist and His Mother, which was in an unusual magazine called Paradox. And Paradox was a newsstand magazine which published, uh, uh, they published uh, alternate history stories and they also published myth-based and myth and folklore-based stories. And so I was interested in, in uh, writing this uh, 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 Asian uh, folklore story and I, that, that's how that one came to be. Um, and uh, there's also several stories from um, uh, when I was writing stories in the early days for uh, Roy Torkman's Chrysalis and his anthology uh, Other Worlds. Um, so pretty much anywhere where uh, I could get a story in that was not what I was u- not the kind of thing I was usually doing. Um, I found those were a good break from the horror stories I was writing. You, you find that uh, if you've been writing the same kind of thing, at least in the same genre for a while, sometimes it's good to step away from that and expand your horizons. Um, yeah, with you writing uh, diversely genre-wise, you, you kind of get the idea that you uh, you like to read a lot um, and you like to read widely as well. Are there... Uh, what what are you reading today? What what What's getting you excited about reading? Well... Lately, I mean, there's several books kind of on my news, my uh, bedside table that I've been reading. Um, there's a, a science fiction novel, Blackfish City, by Sam Miller. That's really terrific. It's uh, it's kind of a uh, well, I, I suppose it might be the next step after uh, cyberpunk. It's it's a uh, just a really unusual, forward-thinking uh, uh, novel. It's, it's really tightly written. I'm also reading a number of uh, short story collections by writers. Uh, there was a collection, uh, Her Body and Other Parties, by Carmen Machado that came out go- <coughs> excuse me, a couple of years ago. And I've been reading through that, and it's one of the best, most skilled first collections I have ever read. I mean, it's a really remarkable book, and it's justifiably getting a lot of praise. Uh, and she plays a lot with the form technically, uh, so I think uh, you can really learn from reading a book like that collection. Uh, also, started reading uh, a new collection. You know, you want this by Kristen. I don't know how you pronounce her last name. Rupinian. Somebody. Mm-hmm. She's, she she's famous for a story she wrote called Cat Person. Okay. It's, it's collection. It's it's really a remarkable book and. Someone I discovered recently, and I've been reading his collection, is Rich Larson, who may, in some ways, is the most interesting science fiction writer of short of short stories to come out in recent years. And he also is insanely prolific. I think he published 150 stories in his first five years, something like that. Wow. <laughs> and they've been in every major market. Um, um, and Lightwave and Asimov's and Analog, and it's really terrific stuff. And it's really, it's really interesting to see what a new and different writer can do with some of the standard tropes of science fiction. Mm-hmm. So I, I found his collection 
uh, it's called Tomorrow Factory uh, to be a really um, revelation. I like that title. Yeah, it's a great title. So those are just some of the things I've been reading recently, but I do read a lot. Uh, I try to I do. I read a lot of things for research. I read a lot of uh, nonfiction, a lot of uh, science books. I, I read uh, uh, science news regularly. Um, I, I also read uh, New Scientist. I have a subscription to that. And so I, read, I watch a lot of documentaries having to do with science also. All those things tend to stimulate ideas. Excellent. Now, uh, while I was uh, researching you for for this episode, I noticed that you have a a YouTube channel uh, that you just started. I think it was like Christmas Eve when you posted uh, uh, the video that's up there, and it has a pretty strong message about climate change. Uh, do you have any plans to do more videos for that channel? Uh, maybe I don't know. I mean, it was uh, I I got involved with uh, a friend who does work for 2020 or bust uh 2020 or bust is a uh they they have this app which is available for android and uh, iphones and also for tablets and it's a an app app which gives you various options for lowering your carbon footprint it's everything from planting trees to reducing your meat consumption or reducing the amount of plastic you buy. There's a, a number of, of things you can do, and it keeps track of actually the amount of carbon you're saving, and it compares that to other users worldwide. And it's a very practical way for people to start doing their part to uh, do something about climate change. And so I've been talking to uh, to them, and uh my friend had suggested I maybe make a video. And um, so I made this video in part giving this kind of message that I've been been doing in, in, in letters to the editor that I've been writing about climate change. And um, it's the first time I've ever done anything like that. And um, it was interesting to do. And I, and I may do it again. I hadn't really made any real definite plans. I'm My commitment over the next few years is to do what I can to write about climate change and and how big the problem is we're facing. And I've also, for the first time in my life, really, I've been uh, working with uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, which is a lobbying uh, uh, group which uh, lobbies Congress to get legislation passed to address climate change in some way. So that's one of the things I'm trying to do with my with whatever time I have left on the planet, is to try to make it a better place, at least for my grandchildren. Yeah, you're yeah. Say, you're saying that in your video that you would uh, uh, you you would feel awful if you know after you died you left your children and your grandchildren uh, a world that's basically dying. Yeah, well, climate change is one of those rather strange and difficult concepts that it's. Uh, I've heard it, heard it referred to as a hyperobject. A hyperobject is this is this thing which um, the system which is larger than any particular time or any particular place is something that's so global that is is so large in terms of time frame, and it, it, that it's hard for us to 
really get our minds around it, which is one reason we tend to ignore it. And we tend to assume that we can't affect it. But the evidence is clear that what we have done in the past is has affected the climate and has bring it to uh, a really disastrous state. So there should be some things we can do to reverse that. Yeah, exactly. I'm totally on board with that. Um, all right, I, I think uh, we'll uh, let you go now. But before we go, uh, I want to know if you have anything else coming out soon that you're able uh, to tell us about. Well, the, the other book that's coming out this year for sure is uh, uh, I have a collection of my latest horror fiction stories from the last two to four years. That the things that uh, have come out since my collection, Out of the Dark, and Centipede is doing this. It's going to be out around Halloween. It's uh, called The Night Doctor and Others. And it's a collection of 25 or so stories, including two new pieces of fiction. And he's doing it as a hardcover, but an affordable hardcover. It, you know, most of the Centipede books are quite expensive and have really limited print runs. What he's trying to do with this book is do a print run of around a thousand and make it an affordable hardcover of $25, $26 so that more people can afford it. And that's really what I'm interested in doing now. I'm not really that interested in doing limited editions of one or 200 that people buy and then put on a shelf because they want to preserve its value. Yeah. I want it to be read. Well, when you when you buy a book like that, you're afraid to read it too, because you probably paid about a hundred bucks for it, <laughs> and uh, you know, you're just reading it, you're like, oh, I might stain it or something. <laughs> and I, I've tried to get make sure the ebooks of some of those expensive volumes have come out, but sometimes not everyone never, not everyone likes reading an ebook. So yeah. Um. So, uh, is there a, a pre order for that yet? Uh, no, not yet. Uh, Centipede is changing up their distribution a bit so they're i think they're going to plan to set up an actual amazon store for centipede press starting with this book so he has to get that in place first so but i'll, I'll for sure i have a website stevetim.com and the information will be on there for sure excellent so i'm, I'm definitely going to pick that up um where else can people find you online uh, well, I have a fairly active Facebook page. It's uh, Steve Tim or Steve Rasnick Tim. Uh, so they can see me there. And beginning of the website, www.stevetim.com, has information about all my books, how to order them. Uh, there's even a complete bibliography that you, in a PDF form that you can download that has all my stories listed. I think there's about 440 now. Uh, and the, and the books and, and all the bibliographical information about them. There's also uh, free fiction on that website. And I even have a one section devoted to climate change. Excellent. So there's a lot of information. All right, Michael, are you still there? Yes, I am. <laughs> do you, uh, do you have any other questions before we let, uh, let Steve return to his uh, life? I do. I do. Just one more. You you are so prolific. When our listeners want to discover your work, what would you recommend they start with? Do you have a couple titles that you'd like to pull people toward? Well, 
figures unseen, the the selected stories. I mean, that's the purpose of that book is to give someone new to my work a good place to start. That gives you a good sense of what I do. So, figures unseen, which was published by Valancourt Books, it's in it's in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and there's even a audio vision, uh, audio version of it available on Audible, read by Matt Godfrey, who's a wonderful reader. So he did a wonderful job narrating that book. So I would start with that one. Um, If you're interested in a novel, um, it kind of depends what your tastes are. If you're, if you, if you like things that are really graphic and um, kind of hardcore, I'd I'd read Yubo. Otherwise, I'd probably start with something like Deadfall Hotel. Which very is a haunted, haunted, a haunted hotel story. Which is also very awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. All right. Well, my, thank, thank my you. Taste, uh, my taste will definitely run towards you both. So. <laughs> <laughs> Michael likes the disturbing stuff. <laughs> I do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Steve. Um, you were, like, honestly, uh, a bucket list author I wanted to talk to on this show. And uh, I wasn't sure if I'd ever actually have the nerve to approach you until until Kate Jonas uh, asked me if I was willing to interview you. And I was like, yes, <laughs> let's do this thing. <laughs> so thanks. thanks well, sometimes so much. you just have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I can get shy with some of the some of the people I admire the most. And uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we'll have to have you on again sometime when you want to. Uh, uh, whenever you want to uh, promote something. Well, thank you. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Pain has a face. Allow me to show it to you, gentlemen. Okay, so Halloween. Um, the night he came home, yeah, you or know, or like the third time. I remember talking about this on the show too when it was first announced that uh, that they were first gonna do it. And we've second, been talking about this for a couple years, I think. Yeah, we have. And I remember when we all got excited because, uh, excuse me, John Carpenter was going on board, not as a writer or director or anything. He was just gonna be a consultant, but uh, that was still pretty exciting. Of course, Jamie Lee Curtis was on board. Uh, She came back to revive her role uh, that she played in the first movie, uh, Laurie Strode. Now, there's one thing that a lot of people said about this movie that that interested me, in that uh, it pretty much doesn't count any of the uh, sequels. It only counts the first movie, so it's like a direct sequel from the first movie. But while I was watching it, um, I, I couldn't help but think that the second movie could have could have been involved. Did you feel that way at all, Michael? I did. In fact, I thought that this movie was picking up after the second one. Since, since Halloween 2, the original John Carpenter Halloween 2, takes place like... Right after. Moments after the first one. So I thought that this movie was actually after the hospital burned down and everything. It so, should, yeah, it should be. It struck me too. Because the level... One thing I like about this movie is Jamie Lee, uh, the uh, the character that she plays, Laurie, 
she is uh, suffering from some severe PTSD. And she's also, like, uh, very militant. And um, having survived the first movie, I could see having PTSD. But Jen and I, my wife, we were talking about this uh, before the show, actually. um, That we don't think that the PTSD would would have gone into the militant, (laughs) you know, training her kids with guns and and stuff like that and having like a you know a panic a secret panic room i i don't know if the first movie would have warranted that type of ptsd uh i could be wrong obviously but the second movie is just so much more brutal that that then you could see it i don't know i i disagree i think that if your brother who had already killed one sister came back, like, escaped on, on Halloween night, killed all of your friends, was shot dead, and then, like, got up and walked away. And, <laughs> you know, I think I would... Yeah, maybe. I, don't, I, think I, might, I think I might prepare for that. I can see that, I guess. But, uh, but I, I, I mean, don't know. I would Just... not be caught unaware again, ever. If that happened to me, I would, you know, I would, yeah. I bought that. That worked for me. I, uh, I, what I do like though, is that, you know, it's, it's like 40, 50 years later, Laurie has grown up. She's not only grown up, she has a daughter and a granddaughter. And, uh, she's, as I said, suffering from some major PTSD and, uh, she's got a bit of a drinking problem, um, that she's trying to fight, but has little slip ups here and there. And then of course her worst nightmare comes true. (laughs) I just... To, to back up just a minute, I just realized while we were talking about this that it did it explain at all how Michael Myers was caught and then put back in a facility because at the end of the first one, he's just gone from the grass. So at some point they would have tracked him down and just taken him back into custody. Yeah, I, uh, I, I didn't catch that. I don't know if they ever explained that. They might have, but I didn't catch it anyway. All right, so... Um... You know, um, that's one thing I really enjoyed about this movie was the uh, was the characterization, especially of Laurie. But you know, I felt that there was a lot of strong female characters. Every, except for maybe the granddaughter, she was uh, a little different. But like Laurie and her daughter, they were pretty strong, and uh, and they were, you know, you didn't want to fuck with either of them. Definitely not. Laurie Strode's always a badass. Yeah, well, she she seems like she's not until the shit gets real, and then. Yeah, and then she's you know all uh, you know all in for the action. She kicks ass. Now, this the the guy who directed this, his name is uh, David Gordon Green. Have you uh, seen anything that he's done? Let's see. He did um, he did that movie Joe with Ty Sheridan and um, Nick um, Cage. Nicholas Cage that I liked a lot. Yeah, that was a really good movie. He okay. hasn't done horror before, as far as I know. He's no. done some more independent dramas. You can see in, in Halloween because there was a real emphasis on the drama of it, I would say. Yeah. It was it was interesting because um, if you were to compare this movie to uh, what's been done in the past with Halloween, I think that uh, they were trying to sort of meld... Now, this is just my opinion. You might not agree, but I think they were trying to get the feel of both the Rob Zombie films and uh, the original. Like, sort of meld the brutality of Rob Zombie's stuff 
and uh, also meld it with the uh, sort of slow, creeping horror of the first film. Yeah, I definitely got that. It's It put itself right in between. It was a pretty good balance. I had to wonder why they uh, chose to do some things, though. Like, uh, there's this one scene. One of the kills is uh, a woman getting a knife right through the neck, and you see it. You see, there, there is no hiding <laughs> from that. But another murder happens pretty much off screen where you can't uh, see it and but you hear it <laughs> I gotta wonder why did they decide to show one and not the other or why not hide both of them to leave it up to the imagination I think we'll have to listen to the commentary for that like my major problem with this movie um, and it, it goes to what you were saying is just that the previews ruined all of the scares for me um which is why I usually don't watch so many previews, but I was really excited for this, so I did. And I was watching the previews, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, gosh, they're showing all of the scares. And so I went, and I saw it, and they did. Like, the previews covered everything, except for one, which I'm not going to say, but the one with the, in the backyard with the lights. Yeah. But everything else was covered, you know, so so that really kind of ruined it for me in a major way. So so I'm upset about that. Because the scares would have been really good, I think. I mean, you know, sitting down in the in the in the dark theater and watching it unfurl, I think it really would have been effective and creepy. But you know, I was desensitized and knew what was happening. Yeah. I uh, I didn't have that issue myself, but I didn't I didn't watch any. Pre I think I watched one preview like the first time, like when it was first released. Yeah, I, uh, I watched it and then I didn't watch anymore, and I kind of forgot anything that was in there because I didn't go see it in the theater. I actually just watched it last night. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, pretty much anything that I watched in the previews was erased because you know my memory is is god awful. It's it's a terrible place. <laughs> So what are your final thoughts on this one, Michael? Did it live up to uh, any expectations? You no, know, it really did. It really did. Um, the, the first scene with the mask, I thought, was stupid. I was just downright stupid. Except for that, um, I, I did think a lot of scenes were, were repetitious. You know, like the, like the bathroom stall scene, we've seen that. No, like three different times. Um, but overall, if I hadn't spoiled the scares with the previews, I think I think it's a pretty pretty good movie. It was worth waiting for. It was. I it was pretty good. It was pretty good. I give it I give it four stars. I liked it. Yeah, you know what? I'm, I like I'm, how it all wraps up too. I like that. I'm on board with four stars. I think uh, I'll give it a solid four. It's not a perfect movie, but it is. You know, it's a good. Uh, it's a good horror movie. Um, you don't even technically need to watch any other Halloween film at all. I don't think. Which to, is nice. Yeah, to enjoy this one, all you have to all you have to know is that Jamie Lee Curtis's character went through this before. And, yeah, and, you don't even really need to watch the original. Yeah. I mean, you could just go and, and watch this one. You just need to know that she I survived Michael once before. So I'm. You know, I liked all of them, all of the Halloween movies. I'm really easy to please in this franchise. Yeah. 
I found that they uh, they kind of uh, turned some of the uh, horror movie or slasher movie tropes on their head too. Um, uh, there's that babysitter. Um, I don't know her name, but she was like one of my favorite characters. Just her her personality. She was uh, she was funny and uh, and yeah. intelligent, right? I thought she was yeah. honestly. I thought she was going to be a final girl because she had that inner strength about her, like. Uh, her boyfriend comes over as she's babysitting, just like in the first movie, right? And yeah. uh, she, he does something nice for her. He's likable too; like he's not a dick. <laughs> it's like what the hell? And so yeah, that is really I know that really surprised me. I'm like, oh wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was a that was a really great. That was I loved that. I forgot about that until until you brought that up. I love that that whole set piece. Yeah, there. absolutely loved it. That was really good. Me too. And I like he did something nice for her. I can't remember what it what it was exactly, but she looks at him. She's like, "Oh, you're so gonna get dry fucked tonight." <laughs> I'm like, "Dry fucked? Okay." <laughs> oh, I love that. That was just so funny. All right, so yeah, four stars for me. I think it was well directed, well acted. Um, it was just kind of lacking. I think it didn't have. It should have either chose, I think, honestly, to be more brutal or less brutal. Um, I would have been yeah. fine with either or, but they kind of like, they. it's like they didn't know exactly what they wanted to do, if they wanted to scare you or if they wanted to gross you out. It didn't have that extra gear that would really push it up into five stars and be like, wow. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. there's something lacking there. But you there's know what? Solid, but, For... Yeah. If you compare this movie, I think, to all the other uh, all the other uh, sequels, and I'm not talking about Rob Zombie movies here. I'm talking about the actual Halloween, like the first ones, all the sequels in that franchise. This is, I, I would say, better than all of them, and that that's saying something because there's some good. Not ones H2O in there. though. H2O. Not H2O. No, I, I would I would say it's better than that. Really? I like H2O I... though. I, I like H2O though, so that's you know it's saying something. I don't know where I would put it. I don't know where I would put it. Somewhere in the middle. And Somewhere what... high up. I don't know. See, I really, you know, like I say, I love the whole Halloween franchise. I, I love the two with the little girl that was kind of becoming oh, yeah. Michael Myers. I love those two movies. What are they, like, four and five? Mm-hmm. I love four and five. I just, I do. They're, like, two of my favorites. So, like I say, I'm just ridiculously easy to please with Halloween. <laughs> I just I love them. so so I don't know it's really hard they're all really high up in my estimation like yeah. all of them I think it's because Two of the name Michael my least favorite although you know the one with the the Michael Myers cult and isn't isn't there one with like that's like almost like a found footage in some house that's kind of weird but I don't know you know I'm not sure about that um, it's been Michael a long Myers time so love him. I, I think you, I, you I think you love Michael Myers and Halloween the Halloween franchise so much because of the name Michael. I I'm in love with Michael. Yeah, just like me with Friday the 13th. Yeah. Although I like Freddy better, so I guess I'm off on that. I like the early Freddy. Once he got campy, that just ruined ruined that. Yeah. You know, like each subsequent movie just sliced his character if i trying to trying to make some interesting pun oh my god <laughs> by the time he, he became the um the video game character 
there was one when someone was playing a video game and and he popped into the video game. Mm-hmm. I was like done for. Oh yeah. my god. For me, it's more the concept, uh, the idea of a uh, of a uh, like a demonic entity killing people in their dreams. That kind of excites me. I think they could have done so much more with that franchise, honestly. That, but they they did go down that more comedic route, and I don't, I don't think it always worked. <laughs> obviously, if they had just got, if they had, had kept being like really hardcore, they, it would have been. I don't know. Yeah, kind of like the Hellraiser movies. I mean, those are just there's there's there are a couple of Hellraiser movies that I don't think even have Pinhead. There's the one with the cop. Yeah, Pin, Pinhead is in it, but he didn't need to be in it. And that was the thing, because the movie, um, that movie that you're talking about, I can't remember the name of it, but it wasn't meant to be a Hellraiser film in the first place. They just threw Pinhead in there to make it. You told me that before. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because they yeah. wanted to keep the rights. And for some reason, I guess the rights expire if you don't keep making the film. Yeah, and so true, yeah. They keep making really bad movies, and... <laughs> Just to keep the rights, but you know you're not making any money off this shit, so why not? Why not put some effort into making a decent film? I mean, have a little pride. I mean, I just, I mean, do these people? I don't know. I, I really hate to disparage. I don't. I won't disparage an honest effort. You know, if something doesn't work, but I could tell that they were really earnest. You know, they really tried and thought they were making a good movie. But some of these, they don't look like people had any pride it doesn't look like they were really trying it looks like they were trying to slap a movie together to keep the rights yeah so and yeah you shouldn't ever make it look like that because it's just a waste of time a waste of because there's got to be somebody out there that loves the franchise so much that they could do i don't know you know what i'm trying to say there's somebody out there that can write a script just because they love it so much rather Mm -hmm. than like the studio assigning somebody to write a screenplay and make it. Exactly. But you know what? Thankfully, they didn't do it with this movie. Um, I think maybe this was uh, an attempt to keep the rights again, but they actually made a decent film, if that was the reason. I don't know the history behind the making of this film, but uh, I'm just taking a guess here that it was to keep the rights. And uh, and like I said, though, they did it right this time. Um they at least made a decent movie, a nice horror film. They did, yeah. And you know, a lot of fans are split on this one, though. They they either hate it or they love it. I don't I don't understand. Yeah, I'm why. looking that um, at least on, excuse me, IMDb. It's got a six point seven out of ten, which is pretty middle of the road. I guess uh, technically we both gave it an eight. So. Yeah, I th- I'm I'm gonna rate it, and I think that's what I'm gonna put an eight. Yeah, well, we Maybe gave it a seven. four, right? Oh, I always eight. just double it to make it the IMDb. Oh, that's really smart. I I I don't know math good. <laughs> and apparently English. <laughs> All it's right. Yeah. It's dialogue. I you can need do anything to, I want. As you said, you need to you need to write it a few times before it's right. <laughs> exactly. All right. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we are going to close out the show.
Well, that, that was a pretty cool uh, conversation with Steve Rasnick Tem. I, I really enjoyed talking with him. I love uh, reading his fiction. It was funny before the con- before the uh, interview. I was telling you that you know I've read a lot of his short stories and a couple of his novels, but even so, I feel like I haven't even um, damaged the tip of the iceberg of what this man has written. <laughs> you know what I mean? He he expresses like each idea behind his works very well. Um, you know, the way he was describing all the different, all his different stories and, and works, it was all very distinctive and made me want to, you know, make sure that I read everything. Yeah. So I need that editor again because then they... <laughs> 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 yeah, I, a great guy. I can't wait to read even more of his stuff. Yeah, me too. And, you know, there's comfort in knowing that you haven't even broken the tip of the iceberg. Uh, with there the is. Because I was he, like, oh man, I've got so much to read right now. Yeah, you got a plethora of, of, of stories, and you know, I really enjoy his short stories. Um, he can really hit the nail on the head with what he's trying to say, and uh, so yeah, I really enjoy his writing. Now, if you guys want to uh, reach out to us at all, you can do so easily. We are everywhere on the internet. We have a website, which is wheredarknessdwells.com. We uh, we are on Twitter. We do the Twitter, and uh, we do that, or the handle for that is DarkDweller74, and we're all, we have a, both a group and a page on Facebook, and you can send us an email at darknessdwells at mail.com. Not gmail, just mail.com. Have we been checking that? <laughs> Uh, not in a little while, but I'm pretty sure it's oh, empty. Well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, well, thank you, Michael. And I want to thank uh, Steve Rasnick Tem for coming on the show. And uh, we have uh, we have some ideas for future episodes, so stay tuned. Yeah. And... We, might, we might not see you in a couple months, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so thanks for listening, everyone. We will catch you again. Stay dark, my friends. <laughs>